0: Welcome to Investment Uncut.
1: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
0: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
1: Hi, Mary. How are you doing?
0: Not too bad, thanks, Dan. How are you?
1: Good, thanks. Interesting thing, I was just reading an alumni letter I got from the college I went to university at. Interesting thing, they just made an announcement that their endowment fund is going net zero.
0: Very interesting. I'm impressed you still read your alumni letters, I have to say. But it feels like things are moving really fast in that area, doesn't it? We've seen so many commitments coming out in the last, well, weeks, but days as well, sort of big, high-profile pension funds, that sort of thing. Yeah, it does. Definitely on the pension scheme front, you're right. Right. Because there's been a few
1: sort of high-profile ones in the public domain. Like you say, you know, the BT scheme came out last year. I think it was towards the end of the summer. And then he had a few more schemes, the National Grid scheme, the church commissioners, and a couple of other pension schemes uh, sort of committing. And then these various kind of affiliate groups that have come together. There's sort of the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, which came out sort of last summer. And then the Asset Managers Alliance that announced itself in December. So an awful lot was sort of going on and stuff being announced there.
0: And I guess... I don't know. For me, the big question is, what do they really mean when they say I'm committing to net zero? Is it a headline? Do they all know exactly what it means to them? Do you think?
1: That's a really good question. When you go through the details of them all, it does vary quite a lot what they're actually saying. And you might argue some of the power of it's just in making that commitment so you can steer the companies you're investing in towards that as well. But what seems to be the case now is organizations are pushing for more interim targets. So you know, it's one thing to say we're going to be net zero by 2050, say, which is a bit long way off but a lot of focus on what those interim targets are along the way. And when you look at the publicly disclosed details and some of the commitments that have been made, a lot of them don't include a lot an awful lot of interim targets. Some of them are saying things, for example, my college endowment one, a lot of their portfolio is in illiquid assets. So they were just talking about when they would try and bring some of those portfolios within the scope of that sort of commitment. A few exclusions, maybe on the listed equity front, a little bit of progress on listed equity emissions, which was the easy bit. But then it's a bit of a roadmap for how they would benchmark it and then bring other assets sort of within the scope of it. But it's a really interesting area when you start looking at it, but it's pretty complex, actually. And so it does need a bit of thought going into it to get it properly lined up. But that's the big question is whether you need to have all that thought lined up, obviously, where you can just sort of go with a commitment a little bit earlier.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, quite a few of my clients have really wrestled with this issue, not necessarily net zero specifically, but the sort of what do they do about ESG risks? What do they do about climate risks?
1: I've seen that too. I mean, I guess it is the new and fast-moving area, let's be honest, the way I see it, everything doesn't have to fit together perfectly. One of my little bugbears about the industry is that we sort of insist that everything has to work perfectly before we can even get off square one sort of thing. Why do you say wrestling with it? What are some of the issues that you've seen being debated?
0: There's just so many factors at play here, isn't there? It's such a big, broad issue, but that makes it really, really hard. So you've got the trustees' own personal views. You've got what their responsibilities are. You've got their legal duties. This obviously is in a pension schemes context. Also, the underlying members of that pension scheme, what do they want? What do they think? And of course, regulations. And we're seeing more and more regulation in this area. So squaring all of those things together isn't always that obvious. And regulation doesn't always tell you how to comply very well, (laughs) is I guess the other thing.
1: Totally. Obviously, this isn't just about buying a green fund, for example. I mean, goodness knows there are enough of those kicking around. We see enough marketing headlines for those all the time. And a lot of them are great. Nothing against those. But We're talking something much bigger here than simply making allocations to green funds.
0: Absolutely. And I think one of the things that people have struggled with almost the most is the difference between it being a risk process, risk control process, and it being ethical views. And I think it's been fairly clearly defined that this is about financially material risks. But I think there is still a very big grey zone, I think, in all of this.
1: That was the penny drop moment for me, actually, that I didn't appreciate for a long time, that if you start thinking about, well, what about the risk of a carbon tax coming in? What about the risk of a ban on petrol cars? How will that affect the companies in the portfolio? You think about it from that angle, you can then that's a much more tangible way into it than trying to weigh up all these issues around ethical views and what the members think and those sort of things. For what it's worth, I've been thinking recently, you know, thinking, forward over the next few years, and next decade. I kind of feel like a big part of our job as investment consultants over the next decade is going to be advising on this sort of stuff. I mean, we're just at the start of a long, long period of time where this could be the biggest issue in investing.
0: Absolutely. As you said at the start, we've got many schemes, many companies making these sort of net zero commitments. 2050 feels like ages away. But if you have to take action sooner, then absolutely, it's going to be a key part of what we do.
1: 2050 is a long time away, but we're here in 2021. And of course we got the COP summit in the UK later this year, and that's driving a bit of extra energy, shall we say, in terms of the UK agenda on some of the regulation here. And so 2050 is a long way away, but the regulatory side in the UK is really coming to the fore pretty quickly. It's coming soon.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Do you drive change because you really motivate people to want to change, or do you drive change by the stick that is regulation? I guess if everyone was going to be convinced and make a change because they were motivated brilliant but regulation does have a way of speeding things up and bring the stragglers along with them i guess
1: totally i've really debated that myself a few times because i kind of feel like people don't love being told what to do by the government quite often there's often a need to push back against regulation but it has its place in terms of getting it on the agenda i do think actually if you'd asked me five ten years ago i probably would have said that it wasn't the way to go but actually. It has created a lot of progress and it probably has been a really good thing. And obviously, you're also starting to see the other side. If you look at the campaigns like the Make My Money Matter type campaigns that are starting to get real, real traction now, are starting to ask people to ask questions of their pension as well. So that's more the kind of activism type side, as well as the sort of regulation. It surprised me, I suppose, how far regulation has gone and it's still continuing to sort of push people along, which actually I think is surprisingly good
0: it just sets that minimum level, doesn't it? There's always going to be some people that want to strive ahead of the pack, but the regulation's there to catch everyone full stop, I suppose, which I guess leads us quite nicely onto the subject of this episode today.
1: Yeah, exactly. We're going to get our colleague Ian on to talk a little bit about some of the coming regulations in the UK, but maybe it was worth just quickly reminding ourselves that we've recorded a couple other episodes that are probably good background listening as well here. So we spoke to Claire Jones, didn't we, just before Christmas, talking about climate scenarios. So that's a big part of what a lot of UK investors are being asked to do, to conduct climate scenario analysis on their portfolio. And then we also talked to Claire previously about some of these low carbon type funds and sort of some of the work we're doing there so hopefully building up a good picture of the different aspects of this because we're never going to be able to deal with it all in one conversation are we
0: no and no doubt we'll talk about it again later in the year as well
1: so today joining us for a conversation about how asset owners are responding to climate risks and opportunities we're delighted to welcome ian Gaimon from lcp's responsible investment team ian hi hi dan good to talk to you
0: hi ian welcome to the show Before we kick off, could you just let the listeners know a bit about your role at LCP and I guess what brought you to this particular episode on the podcast?
2: So, I'm an investment partner in the LCP team. I've got two roles within that client facing side. So, I'm talking to trustees of charities and pension schemes on how they can manage their investments. And then the second role, which is perhaps most relevant to today, is I work in the responsible investment group, supporting our efforts for trustees on looking at all aspects of responsible investment, including climate change. Ian, and before
1: we get into all that, why don't you just tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV or your LinkedIn profile?
2: I guess going back quite a long way, my father worked for the Overseas Development Agency. So that took me to some pretty unusual places. One such place was a group of islands called the Kiribati. It's in the middle of the Pacific, about as far away from anywhere as you can get. And we lived on a little island who was two miles long, quarter mile wide, surrounded by coral. So pretty privileged place to grow up as a child. But it's also kind of where I first saw firsthand just how a community can live completely self-sustainably. And so I guess that's why I'm sort of mentioning now. It's quite relevant that we're talking about circular economies and how we're going to need to really adapt the way we live as a society to be able to keep surviving in this planet. Where else do we go otherwise? Is it
0: Mars? (laughs) (laughs) What a lovely way of introducing the topic, Ian. Thank you. I guess, as illustrated by the fact that you're working in sort of cross-industry groups, this is such a big fundamental issue, and we do all need to sort of pull together and work together on this. So really keen to talk through sort of some of the requirements and some of the guidance, I guess, that almost just ensures everyone's doing their bit. But I'm very conscious this is an area of the industry as with many areas, that is completely full of acronyms and jargon. So I wondered if we could just do a little bit of sort of acronym busting to start with. So TCFD, that's one of the things that we're going to speak about today. So could you just give us sort of, well, tell us what it means and why it's relevant?
2: Let's bust the acronym TCFD. So it stands for the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And it was set up in 2015, led by Mark Carney and the Financial Stability Board, really. To help put in place a structure and a governance process for companies, particularly to report on how they're managing, monitoring, assessing climate risk within companies. And it's structured around like four key elements. There's the, the sort of the governance side, strategy side, the risk assessment and metrics and targets. And bringing all that together, very applicable to asset owners as well as those issue was is the companies that are sort of for whom it was first
1: targeted. At. That's the thing, isn't it? It's kind of, I suppose, been pivoted a little bit, hasn't it, towards asset owners. As you say, it sort of originated for companies. And then what's the thinking process been? People have thought that it can be applied to asset owners as well, or it ought to apply, or was sort of looking for a framework and decided that that was actually pretty good as well to use on coming from the other side of the coin, if you like.
2: That's it. I mean, it was primarily we need to get the data out there on the companies that are producing carbon emissions. How do we help them start looking at that and then managing what they need to do to get into line with the Paris Agreement, the goals of the Paris Agreement? And then extending that, you can quickly see that asset owners, they also need to be thinking about how they're investing and how that's aligned with the goals of Paris Agreement. Because if we don't do that, we're going to get into a lot of hot water literally. (laughs) With global warming, we're on target if we don't take action to hit sort of three degrees of warming relative to pre-industrial times. So that's some serious weather related events going on around the world if we don't do anything.
0: So in terms of actual requirements, how broadly does TCFD apply as a requirement as opposed to sort of guidance?
2: So TCFD in the UK, under the green finance strategy that government put out in 2019, is going to be made compulsory for listed companies. So they're all having to roll that out. And then on the asset owner side, we've got the insurers, general insurance companies, life insurance companies, and pension schemes, all having to also apply the TCFT um, governance and reporting requirements. On pension schemes, it's at this stage, just at the larger ones. So we've got the five billion plus schemes starting from October this year 2021 and then it'll extend to £1 billion plus schemes from next year in October as well. That's not the end of it though, government's expecting to extend that to smaller schemes and that'll be consulted on in the later part of 2023 with a pretty strong expectation that most pension schemes will come under the requirement to report and apply the governance processes of TCFD from 2024. So by 2025, most companies and asset owners around the UK certainly
1: will have to comply. On the pension side, what's enabling that, I suppose, is the New Pension Schemes Bill slash Pension Schemes Act. A big part of that, as Guy Opperman's been saying, is stronger, greener pensions, and I guess that this is what's sort of underpinning that part of it, isn't it? And in fact, the Act is what's giving it the kind of legislative teeth, if you like, to really get going.
2: That's certainly right. I think we saw legislation through for pension schemes through the SIP requirements come in in 2018. And that's required pension schemes to write about their policies on climate change in formal documents. And what Guy Opperman has really sort of recognised, I guess, is that that's all well and good having some documentation, but he wants to see action. And we know we need to act quickly because every year we put off climate action it's sort of there's a big long multi-decadal lag in the response to changes so you need to act quickly and that's where he saw the need to put compulsion on the schemes starting with the largest ones that to be honest are going to make the biggest difference because they're the biggest asset owners by our country mile.
0: This is certainly a subject that the pension scheme trustees that I work with have sort of grappled with Over recent years, because you get a requirement coming out and then there's no necessarily sort of practical guidance about how to comply with that requirement. And it's, I think, particularly a few years ago, it felt like there was this requirement to have a policy, but no one really knew what a policy looked or felt like. And a policy, as you've just described, doesn't actually necessarily lead to action. So we have had some guidance out recently. So maybe we'll move on to just a quick overview of that guidance. And that's, I guess, involves another acronym. So we've got PCRIG issuing guidance. So can we acronym bust that one too?
2: Yeah, or PC RIG, as I've heard it referred to as well. So, yes, Pensions Climate Risk Industry Group, which was a cross-party group brought together by the DWP and the pensions regulator, and develop a guide for trustees aimed at pension schemes, but very applicable to other asset owners, to manage, assess, and mitigate climate risk and opportunities. And that's all come under PC RIG, which is quite a if you look at the whole document it's about 100 pages but they very helpfully put it together in four parts with some quick start guides so quite easy to dip into if you just want to see the five page read of the metrics and targets section for example and what you could be looking at as a trustee there
0: and i think the point you just made is a really vital one so this is guidance that's been put in place or put together, I suppose, with pension schemes in mind, but it's structured around the TCFD framework. So actually, anyone who the TCFD applies to, this guidance could help in a way, even though it's been written with slightly more of a pensions focus. That's right. We'll go through some of the guidance, I guess, and some of the sort of headline areas in that guidance. But as I said, it's structured along the the TCFD structure. So in terms of, I guess, the introduction, and I know we've covered this sort of subject in podcast episodes before, I'm not suggesting we go to town on this. But what does the guidance say about why climate risk is so important? And I guess why it needs a different approach to any other risk that's being run by an asset owner, but in this case, pension schemes?
2: Why is climate risk so important? Well, we've touched on it a little bit already. It's so wide reaching and it's a systemic risk so that as those climate warming effects come through, if we don't make changes, it's going to affect all parts of our society, companies across all areas will be affected So it's a huge impact on geographies as well. The other aspect is it's really well understood that climate change is happening, there is either big transitional changes required in society, and or there are big physical risks coming down the line. So we know this is happening, and as opposed to, I guess, people might say, "Oh well, there's lots of risks that investors should be worried about. This one is almost a dead cert. We know this risk is there, it's coming, it's happening already. And so we should be taking account of it now. And I think up to now, with a few exceptions, the asset owners haven't been taking as much account of it as
1: they should. And that's what we're really seeking to address. What I've felt is that for whatever reason, there's been a sort of industry bias away from really recognising it as a risk. For a while, don't quite know why, whether that's just because it's a risk that doesn't crop up in normal models or whatever, or just the way the industry has been sort of indoctrinated to look at the world. It hasn't included it. So it's needed to be sort of really forced in there a different way, if you like, rather than just being a risk that comes in. And I, but I suppose the other point is that, as Mary says, trustees do wrestle with this and asset owners do wrestle with it in a way. And I guess that's because they ask themselves as in their role, should we be looking at this? To what extent is it our responsibility? Is it a risk to us? Is it a risk to everyone? Do you think that's, partly why it's taken so long for people to really start doing anything? Yeah, I think there is a definite
2: sort of assumption that maybe the market's going to sort it out for you. It's priced in in some way while I've delegated to my pooled fund, fund asset manager to think about these risks. And so why do I, as a trustee, not just rely on them? And that may be a reasonable approach if you've satisfied yourself that they are thinking about them really hard. If you're a small pension scheme or asset owner with pooled funds, you've delegated to your asset manager. If they're really competent and looking at these risks properly for you, then yeah, subject to reviewing and keeping an eye on what they're doing, then that may well address it. But I think the, the issue is that most trustees aren't asking those tough questions of their asset managers. They aren't looking at how across the spectrum of asset classes they have, not just equities, but infrastructure, property, the bonds.
0: And it is interesting, isn't it, the discussion about, I think, in terms of managers, the popular message to give as an investment manager at the moment is, yes, of course, we take these issues into account. But digging below the surface, I guess you discover whether these managers really are or not. And I've heard almost contrasting views over the years from managers. So some take the issue very, very seriously on their own and they are asset owners on behalf of their investors and they think actually we should be taking these issues really into account. But there are others that will absolutely take a lead from their investors. So unless their investors are saying, no, we need you to take this seriously or we'll divest, actually you may not get that level of change that you're expecting. So I guess it does, it feeds back into this, keeping your managers on their toes
1: exactly all what they'll do is they'll say oh we'll offer a full range of different solutions and you pick what you want so that puts it back onto the asset owner again doesn't it because the manager's not really getting off the fence there and they're saying oh, we're just presenting a suite of stuff and let the clients choose so either way it sort of does come back onto the ultimate owners doesn't it to take a view on it there's a sort of
2: reticence from some managers to want to change because they've got a strategy in place they perhaps don't want to completely change they might have some investors who are worried about upsetting by changing the philosophy and the strategy they're following. So there's an inbuilt sort of lag in what they're going to do. They need to be pushed. Try and
1: make this a bit more practical. Should we dig into those four different areas that seem to form the framework for TCFD and I guess for the way asset owners are going to be thinking about this? It's not quite what I expected, to be honest, when I looked at it and just sort of taking the first one, sort of governance, It kind of it sounds a bit boring, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest, but I guess it is quite important. Super important.
2: Well, firstly, just make sure you know, you understand the risks you're trying to tackle. So, what's your knowledge and understanding? And that's a, a big element of the new regulations that the DWP's put out. Is trustees need to educate themselves at the first base to make sure they're understanding what they're trying to get and that they're able to challenge their investment managers properly and their consultants on the advice they're getting and the funds that they're being put into. So. Governance at sort of one level is just making sure you're equipped to consider these risks properly. And then your delegation. Who are you relying on for the advice around climate related risks? Trustees can delegate a lot of it, but they still need to take responsibility for it. Ultimately, they are responsible. So it's not good enough to say we're going to ask our investment managers to take care of this. They need to be thinking about it, challenging them and making sure they've got the right people in place to do
0: that. And all of that goes beyond, you referred earlier, Ian, to the requirements from 2018, to write into your Statement of Investment Principles some policies in relation to ESG risks, including climate risk. So I guess in a very, very practical sense, what does this guidance say that goes beyond what you've written in the SIP? Because you could write in your SIP, we have a policy on climate change, which is this. You could write in your SIP, we delegate however far we can delegate to our investment managers. You can write that before you appoint a manager, you consider their climate. How good they are at considering climate risk. Is that compliant with this guidance or is it expecting that actually you go even further than that?
2: It's basically expanding on what those statements say, really testing the metal on what you're doing. So, drilling down to who is providing the advice, are they qualified to do that, how frequently you're doing the analysis of climate risks, having in place a business plan that is part of the trustees. Annual agenda to consider these risks and opportunities.
0: And I suppose in terms of decision making, the point here is it's not just when you're making a decision about climate risk policies that you should think about climate risk. The point is that when you're making a decision about almost anything to do with the future of, in this case, a pension scheme, this should be one of those factors that's feeding into the discussion and the debate. And how does all this relate to the stewardship, the UK Stewardship Code? So we've got a new ish UK Stewardship Code which presumably is very much consistent with what's written in the guidance. But how do the two sort of connect together?
2: The stewardship code sits very nicely alongside the requirements to put in place the governance process. Stewardship is a really important part of making sure we do meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. It's no good just to divest. If you look at your portfolio and decide you've got a lot of climate risk there, perhaps you're exposed to some quite high carbon intensity companies. Some people might say, "Oh, well, if I just divest from that, problem solved. No, that's not gonna work. We all need to take collective action. And so it's stewardship is really where that comes in. So engaging with those high intensity companies and saying, what's your plan to get Paris aligned? What's the strategy? And if after that sort of conversation, that engagement, you're still unhappy, then that may be a time to divest and or vote against the management and say, look, you need to put in place a strategy to deal with this that convinces the market we're going to get there. Those are really important parts of us getting to the goals of the Paris Agreement.
1: That first bucket, the governance, is about the sort of the oversight and the processes and all that. I guess coming to the second area, we've got strategy. So what is the guidance sort of getting out there? Strategy
2: is starting with taking a look at your portfolio of investments and deciding whether they have a high risk to them from a climate perspective, and then deciding whether your strategic asset allocation should change in response to that. That could include, as i said, tilting away from the higher carbon emitting companies in your portfolio to reduce your carbon intensity of your portfolio and in effect reduce the carbon risk. It could also include deciding through stewardship that you need to take action and particularly the larger investors that you taking action with those highest carbon emitting companies to talk to them about their strategy on climate change and look for them to make movements on that
0: so the idea of strategy and i think the next section really was to do with sort of risks and i know you're very keen to always consider it as risks and opportunities so it feels like those two areas are very interwoven because actually if you're using your knowledge and understanding of climate scenarios and climate risk to inform your investment strategy decisions that's sort of how those two link together presumably. I did wonder when I first saw the heading strategy whether it was a requirement for all pension schemes to have a climate strategy which I guess probably feeds a bit into our final section that we'll come to on monitoring and metrics but there isn't currently a requirement to have a specifically laid out climate strategy like I'm going to reduce my emissions by X or I'm going to get net zero. Is that the case or that's not what they mean by strategy?
2: That's right. Government is very clear that fiduciary duty means trustees have to retain their discretion on their investment strategy. So you can't mandate a net zero ambition on trustees. That was, you might recall, the Labour proposing an amendment to the pension scheme regulations to suggest that all UK trustees should have to do this and what became apparent is that that would in effect break that long-held trust and trust law requirement that trustees have ultimate discretion over their investments.
0: And you've referred already to scenario analysis which I think is a fairly key part of the guidance at least in relation to understanding the risks and opportunities so we are I guess expecting to be working with a number of our larger pension scheme clients Initially, to do this sort of scenario analysis, and can you just maybe talk a bit around what's expected in that area? As part
2: of TCFD, a key component is this risk measurement and assessment, and scenario analysis is a great way to pull together the various uncertainties that are out there from climate change, be those the physical risks, the macroeconomic risks, movements in interest rates and inflation. That flow through to the different asset classes, and scenario analysis seeks to bring all that together and apply that over a short, medium, and long-term time frame to assess how your portfolio is going to perform, and in the case of defined benefit pension schemes, how your pension scheme liabilities might perform, and importantly, also your scheme sponsor, which could be your, a major asset for many of the pension schemes out there. So, scenario analysis pulls all that together and. Gives you as trustees, a way of kicking the tires on what your portfolio and liabilities are going to do. And then looking for how you can improve it, put in place a strategy to tackle some of those risks if you're uncomfortable with where it's at at the moment.
0: So Ian, the final section of the TCFD structure and of this guidance we're we're talking through is to do with monitoring, so setting metrics and setting targets as well. And I guess historically there's been an issue, I think, with monitoring and a reluctance perhaps to do monitoring, and partly that's because of data issues and so things like gaps in the data. So does it shed any light on what we should do where there are gaps in data? Does that stop us monitoring or not?
2: It shouldn't stop you monitoring, but you're right, there are gaps in the data. And There's a lot fewer gaps in the data than there used to be, and it's improving all the time, but there are still gaps. We can talk about sort of scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions, which are the key sort of carbon measures for CO2 emissions that are in the data. Scope three is still very problematic. But that said, you should still take action and measure these carbon emissions. And it's better to have something to measure, even though it's going to perhaps have some gaps in it, than have nothing. That's got to be a first step. And the guidance properly recognises that there are gaps in the data and there's ways of filling them. So where Scope 3 is missing, the data providers, MSCI as an example, one of the biggest data providers on this, will use proxies and will use estimates where companies have neglected to put that information in, or they're unable to, because it's not very clear at this stage. So we'll see this as an area for continuing improvement. The FCA is pushing out the requirement for listed companies to comply with TCFD, so we'll get better data quality from that. The RFRS is looking at sustainability reporting as a project, so we'll get even more data coming through over time on all these things, and that's only going to help with improvement.
0: It's great if there's lots more data and the data is better quality, but of course, there's no point having loads and loads of data if we don't know what to do with it. So you've mentioned, I guess, one potential metric being carbon intensity. What other sort of metrics? Is there a specified list of you should be monitoring these five metrics or is it a bit more bespoke? And if so, what sort of areas are we seeing metrics being set?
2: I'd say most asset owners are focusing on the big two, carbon footprint and carbon intensity. Carbon footprint and carbon intensity are pretty similar. Probably carbon footprint is the most well-known, by which I mean the CO2 emissions as a percentage of the amount of money
1: you've got invested. It's got some positives. It's easily available. This is a normalised metric, Ian, because I've only recently picked up the difference between normalised and absolute metrics. It's not normalised.
2: The wacky, as it's called, the weighted average carbon intensity is normalised. And that one's greenhouse gas emissions, but as a proportion of the revenue that the companies that's emitting the emissions is holding. I guess as an organization, we'd have a slight preference for using the wacky as it's called, but that's not to say other measures aren't good. I'd say it's more important to have a measure in use than not to at this stage. When it comes to the regulations, the carbon footprint is the one that they've put forward as a suggested measure for pension schemes complying with the dwp's regulations but carbon footprint could be used as an alternative as well
1: the thing i hadn't i guess took me a while to get my head around with, with the normalized versus absolute is that one set of metrics is trying to capture how much carbon you're producing from your portfolio effectively the other one is trying to pinpoint which are the particularly most exposed to changes in carbon policy in other words if you're producing a lot of carbon for each million pound of sales you make You might be a tiny part of the portfolio. You might not actually be producing much carbon overall, but you could be very vulnerable to changes in carbon policy. And therefore, that sort of normalized metric on sales is quite helpful to spot little concentrations of risk, but doesn't necessarily tell you much about the overall contribution. So I found that really interesting when I was kind of trying to look at those two alongside each other. They are trying to do different things.
2: That's a very good point, Dan. The absolute, I think, is important for the larger schemes because you remember they're the ones holding most of the assets. So ultimately, for the gross carbon emissions around the world to come down, we all need to get that absolute carbon emissions reduced. So as a big asset owner holding a lot of assets, that ultimate measure, you can make a real difference. The normalized things like the carbon footprint and the wacky are going to be a great way of assessing the risk in your portfolio and which areas to target.
1: And it's always interesting isn't it, looking at a new metric, because I've looked at a few of these now, and you introduce a new metric into something and the world just looks very different because you haven't looked at it that way before. Suddenly you start wondering, are companies with a higher carbon intensity associated with higher yields in the bonds, for example, or not associated with lower yields? You start to look at everything, and I found anyway, you quite quickly start to see that there are always some outliers. And it certainly would appear that those things are not currently being priced, I think it's fair to say, so that there isn't a really clear price relationship with those factors.
2: You get some interesting measures there. I've spoken to a client where they're holding a steel company. And steel companies, by their nature, are quite high in carbon intensity. And we spotted that in their portfolio, they had this quite large exposure to a steel making company. And we were like, how are you thinking about the climate risk for that company? And drilling it down, actually, that company was recycling steel and it was making much more efficient use of energy in producing that steel than an equivalent steel producer elsewhere in the traditional sense. So just by drilling down at that level, looking at the carbon intensities in the portfolio, you could start to ask questions of your manager and really reveal how they're thinking about climate change, which I think is quite powerful.
0: Absolutely. And I guess that brings us almost full circle, which because the first section here was governance and keeping your managers in check. So Ian, that's been a really interesting conversation, whistled through the sort of four key areas. We sort of covered strategy and risk management together, but we whistled through those four key areas. What one thing do you want listeners to take away from today's discussion?
2: It's quite simple. Climate change is very real, be that the transitional or the physical. Trustees have got a fiduciary duty and legal duties to comply and consider those risks and opportunities. So whether it's the PC rig guidance or whether it's TCFD more generally, there's some really useful practical actions that you can start to take to look at those risks and make sure you're complying with your fiduciary duties.
1: Cool. And Ian, what do you think is the most underappreciated part of all this at the moment? It's really recognising you're entrusting capital
2: to people to go and use that to make things happen in the world. So when you're investing, if you're handing over valuable commodity to make things happen. And so as an investor, you've really got, how to steer those capital flows to make a positive contribution as well as a financial return.
0: And Ian, final one from me, do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts, anything like that?
2: Definitely. David Attenborough's Life on Our Planet, which is his witness statement to the world, if you haven't seen that, really powerful. But also, I think very honest about the challenges that we're going to have to face and our children are going to face as we see this transition. On a more technical note, if you haven't already listened to them, Jason Mitchell's Sustainable Future series of podcasts is really good to listen and some really expert opinions coming into that.
1: Oh, great. We'll put a link to both of those into the show notes. Ian, it's been a great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mary. Thanks,
0: Thanks very much, Ian. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Take care.